Have you ever been lied to? Yes. Has anybody ever told you a partial truth? Have you ever told someone a partial truth? Have you ever defended yourself by saying, I'm sorry, you just misunderstood me? Okay. Typically, those who are self-deceived in this area are fully convinced of their own innocence. Therefore, you're at fault. I didn't lie. It's your fault. You didn't hear it right. Lies hurt. Uh, they also can bring confusion because when somebody lies against you and then claims innocence, it makes you think you're crazy. Well, maybe I did hear it wrong. I thought I heard it that way. And you ever been in that position before? Like, maybe I'm, I'm, losing, I'm a lunatic. I'm losing my mind. Like, it really was my fault. Okay? The amount of comfort that a promise brings is directly related to the character of the one who's making the promise. A promise can be a powerful thing. As powerful as a lie is to the negative, a promise to the positive and a promise come through is very, very powerful. The amount of help that a promise brings a person is directly related also to the size and the content of the promise. If you are in a bad financial situation, and I say to you, I'm going to give you a million dollars in six months, and you believe that promise, that promise is going to be powerful for you. You're going to be able to say, I can get through this six months. We can do this. In six months, we've got a million dollars coming our way, which I would never do, by the way. promise you a million dollars. But it has the power to sustain for those six months, knowing, okay, the bills are late, but worst case scenario, credit card, six months, no interest. I know I can pay it off in six months. Okay? By the way, I would never advise getting a credit card. Don't get credit cards. Run from them. So a promise has a power to sustain the size of the promise. Little promises, you're appreciative of them, but if they're broken, you're not all that concerned. Um, you understand. But the bigger the promise, when it's broken, the bigger the pain. And all of us have been recipients of people breaking promises and also have been, been the givers of pain through breaking promises that you have made. It's just deeply painful. You can become a calloused soul more and more times that you get lied to. It becomes harder and harder to trust. And then suspicion begins to be raised about other people. Have you ever experienced bitterness of soul where everybody you look at, you suspect they're a fake or a fraud or they're lying to you at some, some point or another? Just believe they're not being truthful? Or always think, what's the real story? What's going on? So it begins to create a problem of trusting, a fear of trusting. This morning, we are going to consider the trustworthiness of God, the reality that He cannot lie, and that you can build your hope on that truth in any situation that you're faced with in life. And so in Genesis chapter 21, we're going to be in just the first seven, chapter, first seven verses, we're going to see God's faithfulness to Abraham and Sarah. It's going to be pretty astounding. Uh, do you remember, like in the 90s, it was huge. It may have been before that, but the 3D images. Okay, you'd look at an image, and you'd put your nose up to it, and then you would step back a little bit, and you'd, you, once you saw it, you just, okay, don't move. Pupils, don't dilate. 
you know, I want to see this image. It's an elephant and a field, and then you see the 3D layers. My dad was really good at that, okay? And then I really struggled. And some people are like, it's just a mess of color. I can't see it, okay? You know those images. So the longer you look at these, those images, you see that the, there begins to be a fullness to it. As we look at this passage this morning, I'm going to kind of break it up into three different parts. And as we look at it, imagine that, that 3D image, and as you look at the passage, you're going to see layers to this. Okay, so part one, the first layer that we're going to see as we kind of move our nose back from the page is we're going to look at God's specific promise to Abraham and Sarah. And we're going to look at the immediate impact it had on their life. So nothing to do with us yet, nothing to do with our lives. We're going to simply look at the content of the promise and what the immediate result was for Abraham and Sarah. So God's promise to Abraham and Sarah and the fulfillment of that promise. Part two, we're going we're gonna to kind of zoom back a little bit, and we're going to see as the image begins to clear up, we're going to see God's redemptive purposes beyond Abraham and Sarah. So now we're going to get kind of a bigger scale here. We're going to look from Abraham to Sarah. We're going to look backwards and forwards, and we're going to see some layers kind of in this image begin to come to, to light. And then third, the third layer to the image that we're going to see is God's promises to the believer. I want to consider the promises of God this morning. And a lot can go bad when we consider the promises of God. There's a lot of bad teaching on God's promises, in fact. And then the negative uh, effect of bad teaching on the promises of God is that there's also other groups of believers who don't know really what to do with God's promises. Does God really make me promises right now? I mean, actually, right now, we hear kind of the, the, the charismatic flair of the promises of God, possibly on TV and late night as you're turning through the channel or on YouTube, and you're like, man, I, that sounds weird, I don't like that. And so we kind of disconnect from even the phrase, the promises of God. In fact, I've been, I've been at fault with this. And then we wonder, okay, what actual promises today do I have from God that I can actually claim? Name that promise and actually claim that promise. What are those promises? promises. So those three layers. So layer one, God's promise to Abraham and Sarah. Layer two, God's redemptive purposes at, at large here. And then part three, God's promises to the believer. So part one, we're going to look at verse one through seven in chapter 21. We're going to read it all and then we'll begin to do the layer work. Verse one, the Lord visited Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham called his name, the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. Everyone who hears me, hears, will laugh over me. And she said, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse a child? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. The word of the Lord. The uniqueness of the promise that God gave Abraham and Sarah. We've been talking about it for literally months now. It's here. It actually happened. God's word came true. It's shocking. It was an impossibility. But it actually happened. Isn't it interesting that God gave Abraham and Sarah uh, something that they could do nothing to bring about? They were past the age of childbearing. If they would have told a young couple in their 20s, you're going to have a child. 
it would have been very reasonable to expect, okay, yeah, God could make a young couple in their 20s have a child. Certainly, it, nothing's impossible for God. But a couple in their old age, they're going to bear, they're going to, she, her womb is going to open up. Yes, they're going to have a baby. That is something they couldn't do. They're past that age. So if God is going to bring this promise to bear to reality, then it was going to have to be a miracle, the work of God and the work of God alone. God audibly told Abraham and Sarah, and this is unique, uh, a unique reality about the promises that Abraham and Sarah got from God because Abraham and Sarah did not have in front of them a Bible. They didn't have a Bible in front of them. You realize that? They didn't have power verses that they could flip to. They didn't have miracle verses. They didn't have any of those sorts of things. They had direct dealings with God. God spoke to them audibly. It was unmistakable. And it was a unique promise. It was one that God specifically gave to Abraham and Sarah. It was not for us in the sense that God is not promising because he promised Abraham and Sarah a child. He's not promising you necessarily a child. It was a specific promise to a specific couple. It had purposes beyond them. But their response then was waiting. They waited, they trusted, they sinned, which we've seen the last few, few months. And then we've seen that God repeatedly has been faithful to them. And this truth is no different. God was faithful. Could you imagine, imagine the joy that would have come to Abraham and Sarah? Because we, we talked about month in, month out. Year in, year out. Decade in, decade out. No baby. She has the grand idea, Hagar. And then contempt grows in her heart. As sometimes does when the other woman gets pregnant. And ladies, you want to be. And so tears come and tears go. Year after year. And then, Isaac. Now, euphoria. We could trust him. He's faithful. Abe, he did it. Sarah, baby, baby, Isaac, it's going to happen. And it did happen. God is faithful to do what he said he would do. Abraham and Sarah really could trust him. They're experiencing the trustworthiness of God. And even though we may not be in the scenario that they are in, or they were in, and none of us actually ever, ever will be in the same way, we can look at this story and we can learn from God's faithfulness to them and say, God will be faithful to me. God will be faithful to me. I can trust his word. In verse 2, it says this, at the time. Crucial word, for, crucial three words, at the time. At the time of which God had spoken to him. They waited, and at the right time, Sarah got pregnant. God has a time for every, everything. There's always a right time, a wrong time. This truth should cause us to distrust our own timing and trust in God's timing with our eyes wide open. Not trusting in God's timing with fear or shaking, but eyes wide open and clearly looking ahead and saying, God, I trust you with your timing on everything. God had a time for Isaac, the boy of laughter, to be born. And God has a timing in your life. As you look back and you consider the things that you tried to, to just go out and do or accomplish on your own, we so often trust our own timing, just like last week we looked at like trusting our own will over God's timing and God's will. God has a specific time for certain things in our life. And the difficulty is not is seeing the difference between laziness and waiting on the Lord. 
Because often we feel like waiting on the Lord for a particular thing or clarity in a particular direction or for Him to shut a door to close or open a door to lead us in our direction, it feels like just spiritual laziness rather than spiritual wisdom. But God has a time for everything. And as Abraham and Sarah experienced God's faithfulness, and I'm sure that this has probably been a reality for you as well, uh, what we see from this situation is that Abraham and Sarah, just they, they walk in obedience. So God's faithful, and then look what, look what verse 3 and 4 result in. Look what it reveals God's faithfulness results in. Verse 3, Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore him, Isaac. Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, as God had commanded him. God's faithful. The result is Abraham, Sarah, obey. This should be the natural order of Christian faithfulness, of Christian obedience. We recognize God's grace and it motivates us. It's like a dynamite explosion and it motivates us as we see and contemplate and consider the grace of God. We stop trying to earn things from God and we simply just want to obey. It's our joy to obey. Abraham and Sarah experienced God's faithfulness. So naturally, Abraham is saying, I know his name, Isaac, God told me. We're naming him Isaac. We're going to circumcise him on the eighth day. Gratitude. Not earning from God, but simply wanting to obey. They've experienced the faithfulness of God. God was faithful to Sarah. I love the humor of God in this situation. God does get the last laugh. Do you realize a part of God's unchangeability is that a part of He has a supernatural, God-like sense of humor that's totally different than our sense of humor. He has His own unique sense of humor. And we get to see a part of it right here in this passage. Isaac, you look at that little number to the side of the word Isaac, the name Isaac, in your Bible, and you look down at the bottom, and you see Isaac means he laughs. Okay, I mean, just the irony, you've heard this before. I mean, you've probably studied this or read this or considered this. When Sarah is told that she's going to have a baby, she laughs at God. God then names the son in her womb, tells her the name of the son, and the name is, he laughs. Now, this is, I love this. I absolutely love this story. And do you realize it really is okay to laugh? A sign of marked authenticity within the church is not simply being authentically able to say that your week was terrible. A marked sign of true authenticity is for you to come in here bubbly and for you to say, life is good and I'm extremely, extremely happy. You want to hear a joke? Sometimes that's the most godly thing that you can do and the most authentic thing to, that you can do. And we, as the body of Christ, we want to give freedom to say, you know what, when we're, a, we're in here as a family... There's freedom both ways here. Like there's freedom to be authentically happy. Really. To be really happy and not feel the pressure to say authenticity means I'm just free to confess how bad I blew it this week. Which authenticity requires, by the way, for you to be able to say, I blew it this week. So it's both. And I love the humor of God here. That it, was God created everything? Like... Any sort of common grace that we see, any sort of feeling of, of joy. This week I was, I was counseling with a guy and he likes a particular restaurant. And uh, I encouraged him, when you eat at that particular restaurant, that I would, it's not my favorite, but, and you taste those flavors that you enjoy so much, I want you to say, thank you, Jesus. That's your idea. Thank you, Jesus, for that flavor. Thank you for that taste bud that's able to taste that flavor that I so enjoy. 
that grease that's killing me tastes very good. <laughs> Why is that? Jordan and I were laughing this morning about Dr. Donut over here, the healthy donut. You remember that place? Dr. Donut? A healthy donut? Who could find such a thing? Remember the River Radio commercial? They were in business for like four months because nobody eats a donut to be healthy. You eat a donut, you want it covered in sugar. But you can trust him. You can trust the Lord. And that took me on a... I'm completely lost where I was going with that. But I, there was a point. But part two. So God was immediately faithful. We see this. He was faithful here. Not, not immediately. It was over a period of time. But as we see in the first layer here, there was really impact to real people from God being faithful to them. It really happened. And she really was pregnant. And she and they experienced the same sorts of joys that you feel... If you remember back when that pregnancy test happened and it was positive, you're like, oh my gosh, are you kidding? Or maybe you're like, oh my gosh, are you kidding? <laughs> you know, I don't know. Um, but that happened. It really did. They could trust him. Now, layer two, God's redemptive purposes. So is it pointing outside of itself? Is it only, like in this context, does it only mean one thing? Or is it getting us somewhere? Is it pointing us to Jesus? And as we've seen every week through the book of Genesis, it does, in fact, point us to Jesus. From the choosing of Abraham now till the revealing of the promised Son, the beloved Son, we're pointed to the true beloved Son, the capital B beloved Son, the true miracle child. I was reading in commentaries this week, and this seemed to be the most poignant, the most helpful, and I thought I would just read it for you because the, the commentator just points out seven ways that this story foreshadows the coming of Jesus. And I thought, I'm just going to read the whole thing. I can't improve that. I can't do better, on it, better than that. Uh, this is from the theologian um, A.W. Pink from the early 20th century. He says this, The birth of Jesus was marked for and foreshadowed by Isaac in seven ways, at least. First, Isaac was the promised seed and the son. And you, like these themes, be thinking about this because the promised seed, the promised one would come. And we saw that in Genesis 12, Genesis 15. We've seen that repeated throughout this book as we've been walking through Genesis. So also was Christ. So that's number one, the promised seed. Second, a lengthy interval occurred between God's first promise to Abraham and its realization. We're told, and the Lord visited Sarah as he did in Genesis chapter 21. The immediate reference is to chapter 17, verse 16, and chapter 18, verse 14. But the remote reference was the original promise all the way back in chapter 12, verse 7. So also was there a lengthy interval between God's promise to send Christ and the actual fulfillment of it. Third, when Isaac's birth was announced, his mother asked, Shall I surely bear a child when I am old? Genesis 18, 13. To which the answer was returned, is anything too hard for the Lord? And the striking analogy is seen in the fact that when the angel of the Lord made known unto Mary that she was the mother of the Savior, she asked, how shall this thing be? Seeing I know not a man. Luke 1, 34. To which the query was answered, was returned, with God nothing shall be impossible. Luke chapter 1, verse 37. So that in each case, God's omnipotency was affirmed following the, announce, the annunciation of the birth of the child. Fourth, Isaac's name was specified before he was born. And thou shalt call his name Isaac. Genesis chapter 17, verse 19. Compare this with the words of the angel Joseph before Christ was born. And thou shalt call his name Jesus. In Matthew chapter 1. Fifth, 
Isaac's birth occurred at God's appointed time. Genesis 21 verse 2. At the set time. We just read that. So also in connection with the Lord Jesus, we read, But when the fullness of time have come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. Galatians chapter 4, 4 verse 4. Sixth, as we have seen above, Isaac's birth required a miracle to bring it about. So also was it in the incarnation of Emmanuel. Seventh, the name Isaac, given unto him by, by Abraham, not Sarah, Genesis 21, verse 3, which means laughter, and I love this, and this is a great observation, declared him to be his father's delight. So also was the one born at Bethlehem. This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. And then, I just thought this was good, and it really is not consequential to our sermon today, but it is neat. Because in his day, people were coming against the authority of the Torah, specifically Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. He says, how we, how we, remark, we, we must remark how strikingly the sevenfold type evidence of divine evidences, the divine inspiration of Scripture is, and demonstrates the book of Genesis, which is so much attacked by the critics, was written by one who was moved by the Holy Spirit. So as we consider this miracle child, it ought to bring us outside of this particular story and bring us to think about the coming Messiah. And we see the foreshadowing. We see the pointers all over the place, and it is a reality. The purposes of God step forward toward Jesus in Genesis chapter 21. Although each step contain the purpose of God for that moment, each step also is pointing us outside itself toward a future reality that we now see clearly in Jesus. And this, as we're reading the Bible, is what we ought to be by the leading of the Holy Spirit seeing as we study the Scriptures. The point is, when we do our Bible study, communing with Jesus, how is this about Jesus? How does this point me to Him? How does it point me away from myself? to distrust in my power, to distrust in my will, to distrust in my timing. And how does it point me to trust in the Lord? How does it point me to Jesus, the fulfillment of the promises of God? How does it help me think clearly like I should biblically rather than thinking my continued unclear, unright ways that I've thought all my life? It's re learning how to think according to God's Word. So it's pointing us to Jesus. So that's layer two. It's pointing us to Jesus. Now, layer three. We step back. Our nose is a foot and a half from the image. It's coming clear. We're seeing. Okay. So how's this going to apply now to me? How's this going to apply to me? So part three, God's purposes to the believer. God's promises, excuse me, to the believer. Let's talk about the promises of God. Okay? The promises of God. It should lead us to think as we're doing this, what are God's promises that God has given to me? God gave promises to Abraham and Sarah. That's cool. Has God given me promises? And if He has, I'd like to know what those are. I would really like to know what those are, and I would really like to be able to hold on to them, to believe them, and to take them at His word, to trust Him. If He hasn't, okay, well, all right, I don't need to think about it. But if He has given me promises... I want to know what they are. I want to read them in the scriptures and know what can I, this is, I want to name a promise and claim it. The one kind of naming and claiming that's actually a reality and not the ridic ridiculous nonsense that can be on, that's out there. Okay, what are those promises? Ears, tune up, listen, okay? And let's consider a few things. Chapter 2, or chapter 1 of 2 Corinthians 
excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in Him. Their yes and amen. We've heard uh, songs about that. Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. Trading my sorrows. Remember that song? Yes, Lord, yes, Lord. <clears throat> but much confusion comes when we talk about the promises because we claim things as promises that are not actually promises. It's built on the misunderstanding of the Bible or believing that God has given me some promise that He actually hasn't given me. And you can get in a lot of trouble thinking God's promised you something He actually hasn't promised you and you're, just, you're holding on to that thing and you're keeping that thing in your pocket and He never promised it to you. And now you're, dis dis you're disappointed in the Lord thinking that He doesn't uh, stay, remain true to His Word or you can't trust His Word, but it wasn't a promise. It was a figment of your imagination. And so we need to know these things. So it, three examples I want to give real quick of ways that we wrongly approach God's promises to us. I'm talking about you, angel. Not saying that you approach this wrong. I'm talking about you, Dustin. Talking about me, Jared. Okay, Kathy, promises. How, how are some wrong ways that we can come to the promises of God? Because I want to clarify and the wrong ways and look at the right, right ways. So number one, you can make an make a error when we consider the promises of God by taking a promise out of context. Two passages that uh, often get used and abused uh, are Jeremiah 29, 11 and Philippians chapter 1, verse 19 to 21. Jeremiah 21, 29, 11, it says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare, not for evil, to give you a future and a, come on, hope, hope, hope. True verse, we love it. We love that verse. And it is true, and it is good. And I don't want to shed light on any passage saying that we should not trust that the Word of God is true. It is very true. But that promise is not for you in the way that many people have used it as a promise for you. This promise is taken out of context, and often it gets kind of written on a proverbial notepad or card, and you kind of fold it, and you put it in your pocket, and you think God has plans to prosper me, not to harm me, plans to give me a hope and a future. And we consider that a promise of God for me right now, today, and for tomorrow, and for the next day and the next day. And therefore, if any harm comes my way, if any difficulty comes my way, if I don't make a million dollars right now this year, then somehow or another I can't trust God's Word or I'm not trusting this verse enough. Power verses, however you want to look at it. What we don't realize often, and many of you probably do because we've, I'm, you may have talked or studied through this before, but Jeremiah 29 is in the middle of God calling his people into Babylon. God bringing his people into Babylon. They're going into exile, leaving the, their land and going into exile, and then he gives them this word as they're going into slavery. And it will be 70 years before they're brought back out of Babylon into their land again. And so they're given this promise, the people of God given this promise as they're going into enemy territory as fugitives, as slaves, not free men and women. And God gives them this verse. And so this verse, this promise to the people of God in that particular time carried with it multi-generational hope. That in time, God has a plan with us. And even though we're walking into this valley and we will die here as slaves in Babylon, God's purposes for us are not to harm us, but they're to give us a hope and a future. And friends, that way, that sort of promise for us is really good. Do you realize God's purposes go beyond your current welfare? Like your immediate like well-being. 
And God's purposes go beyond me and my life and my breath. And it goes on to ransom. And it goes on to, if we have future children, it goes on to the generations into the future. God's purposes for us, even though you may go through difficulty and through the pit, God's purposes don't change that He has good plans. And He has purposes for a future and a hope. And so when we pull that out of context, we begin to kind of shred some of the truths away of what the promises of God actually mean. And we put it in our pocket and we claim it. And it was never promised to us that tomorrow would be better than yesterday. Or that next year would be better than this year. Or that the best is yet to come. Although in the reality of all things, the best is yet to come. Philippians chapter 1, verse 19 and 21, through 21, it's another perfect example. For, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. And I've heard many, many people put a period there. This will turn out for my deliverance. Paul knew he would be delivered. And through the prayers of the saints, deliverance will come. Friends, you going through something you need to be delivered from? I promise you, if you will pray and the saints will pray, you have the faith that you will 100% be delivered. See, it's right here in the Scriptures. But as we read on, and God does, does He not bring deliverance from sorrow? Does He not bring, bring deliverance and bring safety to His people at times? God does. These are, these are truths. But when we make them universal, or we make them say every time, or we bring them out of balance with the rest of the Scriptures, or if we stop and don't read the rest of the verse, we miss this. Because here's the kind of deliverance that Paul's talking about. It's fascinating. This will turn out for my deliverance, as is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but with, the full, with that, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death, for me to live as Christ and die as gain. Paul sees death as deliverance as well. Life, death, deliverance. This will turn out for my deliverance, even if it's death. I'm going to be delivered. So we can screw up the promises of God, not screw up, we can have our minds screwed up about the promises of God by pulling things out of context and then believing that God has promised something that He has not promised. And friends, this, is, this can be really detrimental because it can become a way that your soul gets calloused because you think, God, I thought you promised this. And why is this not happening? Another way is that our promises can be out of timing. We can see the promises of God in out of time ways. So Psalm 103, 1 through 3. Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless His holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And forget not all His benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, and who heals all your diseases. I love that verse. Thank you for the truth of that verse. But the problem sometimes of the, when we look at these things and we look at Psalm 103 and the, we, we realize there's a promise here that my sins are all going to be forgiven and He heals all our diseases. Okay, it's a promise. We claim that promise and we put it in our pocket. We fail to realize the timing of the promise. The timing of the promise. Do you realize that your body will grow old and that you will die? And some of you may die before you're old. And there's not a single person in here that can transition from the 20s to the 30s without joints beginning to ache, and then the 30s to the 40s without their back beginning to ache, and then the 40s to the 50s without their everything to begin to ache, and then the 50s into the 60s into new things that you never knew you had beginning to ache, and then the 60s to the 70s with, oh my gosh, i got to spend the first 45 minutes 
getting out of bed by just stretching before I actually step out of bed. And then the 70s, the 80s, I, I mean, who knows? People in their 80s, it's just a they're walking miracle, the fact that they're alive and well. It's just your body grows old, but you know what? There's going to be a day, and this promise is true, there's going to be a day when there is no disease. And you can count on it. And you will have a resurrected body. There will be no pain. There will be no distractions. There will be no addictions. There will be no anything that will inhibit the absolute worship and service of King Jesus. Nothing. He will eradicate it all. But if we miss that timing, and we've talked through this time and time again and prayed, and we've seen people healed here, and we believe this. But if you believe that God has promised you physical healing in this life, in this life, promised you, you are set up to be disappointed. Because at some point, your body will fail you. At some point, your body will fail you. At some point, your body will fail you. It's just a matter of time. And we live as a vapor in this life. Whether we live one second, or whether we live 100, and I think the oldest person in the world now is 117. Something like that. It's a vapor. It's a vapor. So we can screw up the promises of God in our mind. We can be screwed up because the wrong timing. And the third way to do this is that promises are not promises. God promised me, I heard this when I was in college, God promised me that I would find my husband, a young lady said when I was in college. She did not get married in college and left and was screwed up. And if you believe God has given you extra biblical promises that He has not in fact given you, you are being set up to be disappointed. So promises that are not promises. So three questions to ask about God's promises. And then we're going to consider the promises that God has given you. Three questions to consider. As you're reading your Bible in the morning, you wake up in the morning and you're reading through. And let's say you're in Exodus chapter chapter 8 and you're reading through. And then you flip and you do your New, New Testament section. And you're reading through this. Or maybe you're an evening person and you're just you're reading through this. And, and He called the twelve disciples, gave them authority over unclean spirits, cast them out, healed diseases and every affliction, and just opened up randomly as you're reading this. Three questions to ask that could be helpful for you as you think about the promises of God. Who are the promises for? Who are the promises for? So it's going to require you to do some study here. When is the promise for? When is this promised? When is this promised? And then three, what is it promising? What is it promising? What is it promising? Number three. Now, let's consider a few, few promises of God to the believer. And let's just, I mean, let's, let's like, I mean, this is going to be tasty steak here. And we're going to like, you know, it's going to be perfectly flavored. We're going to get in our mouth and we're just going to chew on these promises. And we're just going to like, oh, God, thank you. And these are true. Ste a good steak is good, right? Bella's in West Frankfurt. Best steak I've ever, ever ate. And I'll never forget it. Okay, God's word is even better than steak. Jesus, Jew. God's word's better than even steak. Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 6, turn there, and we're going to go through these, and I just want you to hear these, and just, and just remember, you can trust the Word of God, the promises of God, He provides, He provides our needs, He promises to provide our needs. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 through 34, here's what it says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, or what you will drink, or about your body, or what you will put on. Anybody, any anxious souls in here? Where you just drift to anxiousness? You're just like, don't be anxious. What? Like, I mean, my dad used to joke. He'd say, son, why would you pray when you can worry? Like, okay, just an anxious drift. And just imagine, I just want you to imagine Jesus here saying, saying, saying these words. And he's just actually here, because this is his word. He's actually saying this. 
And if you just had this, if Jesus just showed up, he's wearing his, you know, killer cool sandals, leather handmade sandals and his robe, and he's just here, and, and he's just talking to you. Okay, he's just wearing, and I like to picture Jesus in a Carhartt, but anyways, in the Scriptures, he's not in a Carhartt, but, but anyways, he's here, he's telling you this, he, he's, saying, he's saying this to you. Okay, is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. Like, look at these birds. They neither sow nor reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? Friends, you're more valuable than a bird. You really are. Are you not more valuable than they? And yet your heavenly... And they neither reap nor sow nor gather in barns. Your Father feeds them. Are you not more valuable than they? And by which you are... And which of you by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life. The irony about anxiety is it actually, and you know this if you struggle with it, it keeps you living in fantasy land where you're not actually thinking about things that are reality. And who, by worrying, and when you're worrying, when I'm worrying, does it turn out good? And that's a hard thing. Well, how do we break this? Okay, let's hear let's these promises. Consider... And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, tomorrow is thrown into the sea, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? The Gentiles, they seek after these things, but your heavenly fathers know he knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. God promises to provide your needs. You wonder if He's going to take care of you? He is. He will provide. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 to 16. You can turn there if you want. If you don't want to, that's fine as well. I'm going to read this. And we are two promises away from being done. So hang on. He promises mercy and help in the time of need. Anybody need some mercy? Anybody need some help when you're in a time of need? Okay, this is a promise. Not particular results, but mercy and help. Chapter 4, verse 14 to 16 says this, Since when we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weaknesses, but who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Then let us draw near with confidence, draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. God promises you, believer, in your time of need, you will have mercy and you will have help. And you can take that to the bank. Not particular results, but mercy and help in your time of need. Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to end. Romans chapter 8. And I want you to get this. The promises of God. God's promise to Abraham and Sarah came true. It points us to Jesus and then all who are in Christ. We consider what are the promises to those who are in Christ. Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Powerful stuff. Romans chapter 8 verse 28. And you read this, and I love this because you read it, and the more you zoom out, the more you realize the one verse is so contextual. 
And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. All things? Really? All things? For the good? For our good? Promotions? For our good? Yeah, what about demotions? For our good? Yep, all things together for good. Riches? For our good? You better believe it. He provides riches. But what about poverty? For our good. All things working together for our good. Sickness, health, life, death, all for my good. Every single bit of it. Have you gone through something incredible lately? He's working it for your good. That is not the good. He's working that for your good. You get that? Have you gone through something incredible lately? You got the promotion? That's not for your good. It's working for your good. God is at work. That's not the thing. He's doing something in you. That's the thing. He's working for your good. You've gone through a demotion or you've gone through something that's just been completely demoralizing? He's working it for your good somehow. And in the midst of that, do you know that diamonds are forged or, I don't know, gold is forged and purified through fire? There's something happening that God is working for your good. And then how about this final one? And Andy and the team, you can come up. Verse 31 through 39. I want you to hear this. Your gods, you, you personally, if you're in Christ, you are gods. The God of the universe owns you. You're His. No matter what you're going through, good or bad, you are gods. He has greater interest in you than the enemy of your soul does. And in through sorrow's seasons, through seasons of sorrow, the enemy whispers and wants you to think that he has more interest in you than your heavenly Father. Your flesh has great interest in bringing about sin in you, but the God of the universe has his eye on you. And we're promised that God has set his heart, his face like flint towards you, and nothing can separate you from the love of God. In fact, the scriptures say as much. Listen to God's promise over you, okay? And just, okay, there's the steak. It's just the, you bite into that first bite at Bella's, and you're like, this steak is amazing. You just like, you want to worship. You're like, oh my gosh, like, this is so good. And then we take this, and imagine just rolling it up in a pipe and smoking this. It's that good. Or biting it and chewing it, filleting it, and then ah, ingesting it. It's the flavors, 31 to 39. Listen to this. What shall we say to these things, to all the things that were just said above in Romans 8? That's why you love Romans 8. Go read it, study it, memorize it. What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Mm. Mm. If God is for me, who can be against me? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how he, will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies. Who can condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is interceding for you, Dustin. For you, angel, He's interceding for you. His name, your name is on His mouth. Angel, angel, angel. Interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Shall distress? Persecution? Famine? 
nakedness, danger, sword as it is written for your sake, we're being killed all the day long, we're regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all of these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. How's that for a promise? You're loved. And you will never not be. And even you, with all your power, cannot separate yourself from His love. Nothing you go through will. You're His. You are His. And He loves you. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your love. Now we get to sing about it. We get to respond.